This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That's on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. I'm with Joala Netulo, Wisani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. South Sudan angered by the renewal of the mandate for UN peacekeeping forces in the country. South Africa's port city of Durban to host to the 5th National South African TB Conference, to host the conference rather. In economics, the European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, says he has reached a crucial step on a deal with his British counterpart. And in sport, Musa ability to step down as Liberia Football Association President. Jola Natulo has your news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Authorities in South Sudan have rejected a unilateral decision by the United Nations to review the mandate of its peacekeeping mission in Africa's newest nation for one year. The authorities say they should have been consulted before the renewal of the mandate. James Shimanyula reports. The United Nations Security Council's unilateral decision to extend the mandate of the presence of its peacekeeping troops in South Sudan has angered the authorities in Juba. Reacting on the renewal, South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay said the United Nations should have consulted the Juba authorities for permission to extend the mandate. McQuay made it clear that Juba authorities are, as he put it, tired of the yearly renewal of the mandate. Zambian President Ed Galungu has urged Zambians to work with his administration to fight corruption in the country. He has, but he had, rather, he has since implored members of Parliament to support initiatives tabled before Parliament aimed at strengthening anti-corruption institutions. Hilda Akakelwa reports. President Ed Galungu says his government is determined to uphold the principles of good governance and integrity in line with the Constitution. He says it's through active adherence to good governance and integrity that government will be able to achieve its plans to develop the country. He says corruption is a cancer that needs to be fought from all angles and not just in the corridors of government but also within the corporate world and at individual level. South African retired Deputy Chief Justice Dekhang Moseneke says he has declined invitations to recommend prosecution for senior government officials who were involved in the unlawful transfer of mentally ill patients to unlicensed NGOs, which resulted in 144 deaths. Moseneke earlier ordered government to pay each victim of the life of Dimeni 99,000 US dollars in total for a variety of violations, including constitutional damages. This must be paid within three months. Moseneke announced his findings and recommendations as part of redress for mentally ill patients who died as well as those who survived. Mosenega was speaking in Parktown, Johannesburg. I've declined also to order South African Police Service to investigate criminal charges that obviously arise from the facts of this arbitration. My office has furnished the South African Police with a full record of the proceedings. They must do their work as the law requires of them and not at my direction. Still in South Africa, fruit producing company Tiger Brands has closed its factory in the capital Pretoria where traces of Listeria bacteria have been discovered. The company also says as precaution it has decided to recall all snacks meat products. Earlier this month, Health Minister Arun Mozoledi announced that the, scarce, the source rather, of listeriosis had been detected at an enterprise factory in the Limpopo and Gauteng provinces as well as some rainbow chicken products. Over 180 people have died from listeriosis and a thousand people have been affected. Tiger Brands of Abakshni Naika says all products in which the bacteria is traced have been recalled. Tiger Brands detected a low level of listeria in a snacks product and as a precaution we've decided to withdraw all snacks products 
some trade and some consumers with immediate effect. The factory that we closed is based in Pretoria. We have suspended operations and we are busy with deep cleaning operations with scientists both locally and some international organizations. And finally, European Union foreign ministers have expressed solidarity with Britain following the nerve gas poisoning of a former Russian spy and his daughter in the English city of Salisbury earlier this month. The ministers have called on Russia to address questions about how the attack could have taken place. International chemical weapons experts are due to arrive in Britain to collect samples of the nerve agent used to poison Sergei Skirbal and his daughter Yulia. Both are in a critical condition. British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has strongly criticised Russia's denial of involvement. I think what people can, can see is that this is a classic Russian strategy of trying to conceal the needle of truth in a, a, a haystack of lies and obfuscation. And what really strikes me, talking to European friends and partners today, is that 12 years after the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko in London, they're not fooling anybody anymore. For, for Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tula. It is 17.06 Central African time. Thank you very much, Jolani, for that update. You can write to us on email. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, authorities in South Sudan have been angered by the United Nations unilateral decision to renew the mandate of its peacekeeping mission in Africa's newest nation for a year. Authorities say they should have been consulted before the renewal of the mandate. Here's James Shimanyula. The United Nations Security Council's unilateral decision to extend the mandate of the presence of its peacekeeping troops in South Sudan has angered the authorities in Juba. Reacting on the renewal, South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay said the United Nations should have consulted the Juba authorities for permission to extend the mandate. McQuay made it clear that Juba authorities are, as he put it, tired of the yearly renewal of the mandate. This automatic renewal every year, despite the objection by the government and demanding that the, the renewal should not be automatic. This way of doing things in the UN is not welcome. From the Juba government's stand, observers say it looks as though President Salva Kiir's administration is against the UN's presence in his country. McQuay denies this. We are not against the, the stay of unanimous, but at least we should be made a party to whatever decision being taken in that respect. The government has been all the time trying to, to work on the amendment of SOFA, but nevertheless it is not considered and people just continue like that. The day may come when the government of South Sudan may decide otherwise. The question that arises at this juncture is whether or not the United Nations renewal specifically targets the Juba government and rebels led by Riek Machar. McQuay again. The target is the government, not the rebels. And this is very clear in the statement of Nick Haley, the American representative in the Security Council. That President Salfa is no longer fit uh, to be a partner. That was South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay. As McQuay, on behalf of the Juba government, decried the renewal of the UN presence in South Sudan, Deputy Special Representative of the United Nations Secretary General, Mustafa Samore, saluted the UN Security Council for the action it took to allow the UN mission known in short as UNIMIS to continue with its duties for one year. UNIMIS welcomes the new mandate and remains committed to working with the people of South Sudan to protect civilians and build durable peace. The mission will continue to facilitate the safe delivery of humanitarian assistance to those in need and to monitor, investigate and report on human rights. Renowned South Sudan activist Melana Ito emphasizes that South Sudanese people desperately need UN protection. They need to be protected. We know the first responsibility or the first person to protect them are the government, but also there is a need from the other humanitarian actors like them, uh, UNMIS, also to do their best to protect 
these people to come back. Melissa Loro, another South Sudan activist, asserts that the continued presence of the UN troops in the country augurs well for the peaceful future of the people of Africa's newest nation. UNMIS has a renewed mandate now, and uh, their protection of civilians as one of their main focus. It should be increased this time round. Civilians must be protected. That was Melissa Loro, a South Sudanese activist. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. African heads of state and government will on Wednesday gather for the 10th Extraordinary Summit of the African Union in Kigali in Rwanda. The summit will be held under the theme Winning the Fight Against Corruption, a Sustainable Path to Africa's Transformation. It's expected to consider and conclude issues related to the African Continental Free Trade Area legal instruments and launch the agreement establishing the African Continental Free Trade more from Lisa Lowe Vaudran, consultant at the Institute for Security Studies. This is a very important agreement that will be signed in on the 21st, as you say. Uh, I think about 25 or 26 heads of state are expected. But it's important to keep in mind as well that this is really just the first step. The negotiations can go on for a, a very long time. This is really the political impetus. Uh, It shows uh, the vision of the African Union to forge ahead with this. But, of course, the nitty-gritty of actual, the free trade agreement, everything still needs to be uh, thrashed out. We do have our regional economic communities. There's COMESA, the tripartite free trade area between COMESA, the East African community, and then SADC um, is already in place. So there are some stepping stones, but it is still um, in the beginning stages in terms of negotiating really what this free trade area will mean. Mm. Now let's look at um, uh, what's going to be taking center stage in terms of discussion. Um, What sort of issues are we looking at uh, politically? Yes, the most important thing is, you know, for the big countries, I think, to make sure that the continent as a whole Uh, There are 54 countries, 55 uh, AU member states should all be on board and get a fair share because when it comes to the CFTA, big countries and powerful economies on the continent, of course, dominate and it is almost in their interest that this goes ahead. In our region, for example, South Africa largely dominates um, the, the economies when it comes to exports, uh, of uh, industrial goods, retail, etc. Um, there, there is a feeling among smaller countries that they are going to lose out when it comes to this uh, free trade agreement because the more powerful economies will make, will completely overshadow, you know, mm-hmm. their economy. So this is the sensitivity around that. Um, Interesting, in January, you know, there was another protocol signed on free movement of people across the continent. Now, as we know, and everybody who travels on the continent, that is also not a done deal yet. But it's almost a trade-off where you could say smaller countries um, want the free, uh, the protocol on the free movement of people. Uh, um, people, uh, countries, uh, uh, inhabitants of countries with smaller economies want to be able to travel uh, and search for work opportunities in our bigger countries. So here you have two protocols. Almost, it's almost a trade-off. So your big economies can say, okay, you know, give us a continental free trade area, and we will let the um, protocol on free movement uh, come into place. So it is tricky. Uh, it depends also on regions, on uh, heads of state, uh, and, and of course the private sector that plays a very important role. And they, at the uh, meeting in Gigali, the Economic Commission for Africa, the African Development Bank all um, play a, a very important role. Now, let's look at uh, Burundi for a moment. Um, their tenor on the Peace and Security Council is ending this month. Uh, what should the AU be doing to sort of really stabilize their country? Yes, that is a very tricky one. As you might remember, the AU was very active 
on Burundi um, at the end of 2015, 2016, and then sort of uh, was undercut by uh, the other heads of state that um, outside of the Peace and Security Council actually that decided that the AU should not send an intervention force to Burundi, which was planned for around 2016. So there's been a... Uh, I could say the AU had handed over decision-making on this issue to the um, East African community, uh, and as people know, those negotiations have pretty much stalled. So there is a call um, for the AU, um, also for the United Nations that has been trying to weigh in on this situation there, to uh, get involved before this uh, referendum that's supposed to be taking place in May. Uh, about constitutional changes which would see President Bian Kulunziza uh, stay on for quite some time still. Now, another issue um, uh, that is uh, um, uh, highlighted um, is that the AU headquarters are, are in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia at the moment, which is um, on its own going through its uh, political upheaval. What implications does this have on the AU, if any? Yes, um, it does. I think the first implication is that the AU um, and especially the Peace and Security Department and the Peace and Security Council is mandated with keeping peace and security on the continent. So it regularly gets involved, makes statements about the Central African Republic, Guinea-Bissau, Burundi. So there is this expectation to say, well, the African Union um, why is it not saying anything about Ethiopia? You know, this has been going on for so long. The protest started all, already in 2016. There was a state of emergency. I mean, this is one of Africa's biggest more than, uh, countries with more than 100 million people. So the impact on the African Union is almost to silence it in a way, uh, like organizations like the Institute for Security Studies and others, and diplomats in Addis Ababa are almost, you know, in a very, very tricky situation and very hesitant to speak out because, of course, Ethiopia is the host. So this is why um, it is so tricky, and, and I try to highlight that in a piece to say, um, you know, one tries to be fair, uh, and uh, the African Union has that mandate to look at peace and security, but here it is almost caught in in the middle because it doesn't want to upset its host, you know. Mm. That's Liz Lovodron, who consulted at the Institute for Security Studies on the line with Zikona Meso. Let us all unite and celebrate together. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. For the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholisasa Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the tree of life. 1718 Central African Time. Now, retired Deputy Chief Justice Takang Museneke has ordered the South African government to pay each victim of the life estimation around $99,000 in total for a variety of violations, including constitutional damages. Museneke announced his findings and recommendations as part of a redress for 144 mentally ill patients who died, as well as those who survived. The, this follows months of public patients who died. Rather, this follows months of public hearings that saw emotional testimonies by family members, government officials, as well as experts in Parktown, Johannesburg. Here's Wissani Makubele. 
Justice Dehang Museneke dismissed as fabricated the reasons that senior Gauteng health officials gave for terminating the long-standing contract with Life Esidimeni. He says government has to pay for its unjustifiable breaches of various sections of the constitution and the multiple contraventions of the National Health Act. The government of the Republic of South Africa is ordered to pay the agreed amount of 20,000 rands to each of the claimants listed in Annex A and B in respect of funeral expenses. Two, the government is ordered to pay 180,000 rand to each of the claimants listed in Annex A, B and C in respect of general damages for shock and psychological trauma. Three, the government is ordered to pay one million rand to each of the claimants listed in annexures A, B and C as appropriate relief and compensation. The award came as music to the ears of the families. Very happy. Very, very happy. But I'm not happy as yet until behind the bus. Yeah. Until behind the bus, then everything is done. As a committee member, I feel highly vindicated. We didn't waste our time fighting. Now they know that what we had told them initially was true. They should have listened to us and they didn't. And now we have this. We salute justice. And we know that this judgment is given, really will give, brings a, a great measure of closure for the families. From the beginning of the hearings, family members have called for former health MEC Kadani Mahlangu, former HOD Bani Silivano, and former mental health director Makabo Manamela to be prosecuted. But Justice Moseneke refused to recommend that they be prosecuted. I've declined also to order South African Police Service to investigate criminal charges that obviously arise from the facts of this arbitration. My office has furnished the South African police with a full record of the proceedings. They must do their work as the law requires of them and not at my direction. Gauteng Premier David Makura, who also attended on behalf of Health Minister Arun Mutswalidi, says government will implement the recommendations. His uh, award, the decision he has made on this matter is something we're going to implement without any reservation. We're going to implement uh, everything that uh, is in the award. Uh, We will also ensure that the law enforcement agencies that are currently investigating uh, the matters uh, to bring criminal charges uh, against those involved, uh, there's a a follow-up. The arbitration process was anchored on the findings of health ombudsman Professor Malikhapuru Mahova, whose investigations found that some patients had died of cold, hunger and dehydration at unlicensed NGOs. Mahova has welcomed the findings. He has also praised Musenega for the manner in which he conducted the proceedings. I think as the, the processes went by, you could see that actually the families were beginning to be relaxed, to be together and to become cohesive. That was actually pleasing to see, knowing where I started with them, where, when they had very little trust. And sometimes they thought that I had been hired or I had been asked to do this because I was going to pepper over things. I was going to make the government get scot-free or something like that. They didn't know me, and I had to end my trust with them. Now, following last week's successful launch, the pilot phase of the Zimele Racism Reporting app, the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation, which is part of the Anti-Racism Network, will, among other things, this week engage with school learners in the Gauteng province as part of the seven-day annual campaign. The purpose of Anti-Racism Week is to create broader public awareness of racism and how it affects individuals and the broader South African society to identify, promote, and build on good practices and initiatives to prevent reduce and eradicate racism. The theme for this year is hashtag root out racism. This morning, the foundation visited Grayville Primary in Linesia, southwest of Johannesburg. The campaign ends on Wednesday on the 21st. More from spokesperson of the foundation, Zakira Vadi. Well, I think it's absolutely essential for a number of reasons. Number one, these are young people who have not lived through apartheid, 
but at the same time face the consequences of apartheid, a long and very deep-rooted legacy. And it will be up to their generation to try and eradicate the upsurge of racism that we're seeing, not only in South Africa, but I think globally as well. So obviously it's different school learners. Sometimes it's your high school learners and you pitch up your message at a different level. And then it's your primary school learners where day-to-day on the sports field there may be incidents of racism, bullying based on the way people look, their accents, their language, whether they're from a different country or whether they're from South Africa, based on their skin color, their gender. And it's those sort of ideas to stand up against those sort of things that we would like to inculcate in these learners. Now, how did you approach this this sensitive topic, you know, when you are trying to get this engagement going? With primary school learners especially, it's about showing what the basics of discrimination are. So, for example, if we go to school, we say all of the tall learners, you will receive four suites, and all of the short learners, you will only receive one suite. Or the tall learners will get a, a break, and the short learners will get a very short break simply because of their height. And using examples like that, that would, they would be able to understand. We try and explain to them that's what happened under apartheid, that people had much more than other people based on their skin color and how people were disadvantaged and how those legacies remain with us today and how simply because it's unfair because obviously children then feel that they have been treated unfairly. Similarly, you can't have that perpetuated unfairness or discrimination that continues today. And that's why racism is wrong. That's why it must be rooted out. So it's about explaining the basics of what racism is, first of all, how to identify it, so how to identify it on the sports field, in their classrooms, among their parents at home, and then how to speak out against it and what they should be doing about it. So simple thing, if you see someone being treated differently on your sports field, or if you are treated in a manner that you don't like, go to your principal, go to your teacher, don't keep silent about it. And then obviously with the high school learners, it's a different, we encourage high school learners to report it through different mechanisms, to take on racism in a different mechanism. Then again, we give them examples of how young people can be empowered. So in 1976, for example, it took young people to create a watershed moment in the country that would be a turning point in our own history. And similarly, young people today can make a similar difference in our society against racism. And we also encourage them to use the anti-racism reporting app. And we know that young people are pretty tech-savvy today. Not everyone has a smartphone, but for those who do, they can use this mechanism. For those who don't, there are other mechanisms to report racism. You've had quite a, a number of public engagements so far. Um, would you say that South Africa is on its way to healing, or is there a lot more work that needs to be done to get to that stage? I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Post-1994, I think there was a perception that things would automatically become right, that we'd soon have a very equal society, that racist mindsets would turn overnight and become anti-racist and would sort of adapt to a new South Africa. But it didn't happen. We still see large-scale inequality, largely based on race. We still see race being a defining factor in the way we live our day-to-day lives, what we're able to achieve. The type of lifestyles that we have is largely defined by race. And we still see mindsets that persist. So what is it that fuels, for example, the mindset of a person who has the audacity to push an African man into a coffin and think nothing about it? Or what policies lie behind schools, for example, that refuse to allow girls to wear their hair in their natural manner or refuse to allow girls to wear a headscarf, for example. So what's the type of policies, mindsets, cultures that persist in schools, in workplaces, across sectors of society that allows this racism to persist? And that's the idea behind anti-racism, to raise awareness about the roots of racism and to try and encourage people to start uprooting this very long-standing ill that has beset our society. That is Zakira Vadi, spokesperson at the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation, in conversation there with Zekona Miso earlier today. It is now time for your news headlines here.
Thank you. Spumalele making headlines. Authorities in South Sudan have rejected a unilateral decision by the United Nations to renew the mandate of its peacekeeping mission in Africa's newest nation for one year. Zambian President Edgar Lungu has urged Zambians to work with his administration to fight corruption in the country. And finally, European Union foreign ministers have expressed solidarity with Britain following the nerve gas poisoning of a former Russian spy and his daughter in the English city of Salisbury earlier this month. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. It is 17.30 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, the coastal city of Durban will play host to the 5th National South African TB Conference in June under the title Step Up, Let's Embrace All to NTB. The four-day meeting is expected to review successes in the battle against the lung disease in Southern Africa. Delegates will include, among others, medical scientists, TB patients, traditional healers, representatives from the public sector, non-governmental organizations, and faith-based organizations. To speak more about this, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Margot Ace, who is the chairperson of the conference. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Margot. Good evening and thank you for inviting me. Now, how important are such meetings? You know, the only way to actually make everybody aware is to talk about a disease. And this is just one of the very important forums where community as well as scientists as well as program managers can get together and they can talk about what we're doing, what is important from all perspectives. And only when all of them get together and see all the other perspectives can can one then plan together and have a sort of unified approach to actually end TB. Mm. Um, we see here that you have traditional healers, um, uh, doctors as well, um, as well as TB patients. How important is to bring everybody together like this? You know, very often patients first will seek the uh, advice of traditional healers. And then, you know, maybe along the line they will go to, to uh, doctors. But... Uh, if we don't understand that one has to treat a patient as a whole, so one has to take that sort of cultural background into account from all, all cultural spheres, uh, one would not be able then to actually reach the patient because what is also very important in TB is that not only the diagnosis, but also once you start treatment, you have to stay in treatment for six months. That's a very long period of time. And if one doesn't understand exactly why that is important, um, you know, then you won't adhere to the treatment. And in, in that whole sequence, it's very important that traditional healers are sort of part of the whole process because very often people, that's what, what that, the, the persons they relate to, that's you know, the people that are from the culture. And, and, you know, so it's important to get everybody on board, not only the scientists. Mm. Um, delegates are coming from all over South Africa? Yes. So South Africa, as well as international, as well as from Africa, uh, you know, we've got quite a few applications and abstracts that came from the rest of Africa. So um, South Africa is one of the high burden countries uh, in the world. And we've also got a very high rate of multi-drug resistant TB. So it's important that we really make use the time and make sure that the first time around we can treat TB and we can cure TB for everybody that, that uh, has been diagnosed with TB. Because otherwise, you know, as, as one goes back and back and has more treatment, the chances of developing multidrug resistant TB just become so much uh, more prevalent. Yeah. Um, what's created a higher rate of multidrug resistant TB in South Africa? As you say, that it's, um, it's one of the biggest burdens in the world in, in South Africa. 
I think, you know, it's a combination of factors, but the one is is that the program itself failed the person because, as I mentioned, you have to take treatment for six months. If you don't understand that, if you don't adhere to that, then, you know, the, the, the chances are that you will have to come back for the second and third time and then it just so happens that it eliminates the sensitive strains and then the resistant strains have got time to then multiply. Um, so it's not one person's fault. It's a, a fault of a whole system that doesn't work optimally. It's access to healthcare is not easy. Patients haven't got access to the drugs. Maybe the drugs have run out. They've got stock outs. Uh, then their personal you know, problems with the patient itself. It's not very nice to drink these tablets with all sorts of side effects. So one has to really be very motivated to, to adhere to that. And other important uh, aspect is, is, of course, is that one diagnoses it, that, that one has a high rate of suspicion. And that, that points to the healthcare services so that they don't ignore, you know, when the signs are there that something is there and it has to be investigated for mass drug-resistant TB. If they don't do that, then you won't diagnose it. We've come a long way with having the um, gene expert is a, um, it's a rapid diagnostic tool that we've got for the last one of the greatest program, uh, biggest programs in the world. Um, but again, it also depends on the programmatic support. So they use just diagnosing a, a strain that's resistant to rifampicin. One has to then follow up and make sure that person is actually starting on treatment. Mm. Um, so when delegates get to the conference, uh, what are they likely to find? What will be happening there? Well, you know, it, it's uh, a, a conference program is sort of set. So there are plenary speakers, usually in the morning. Obviously, with the opening, we're trying to get uh, interesting speakers for the plenary sessions that are world uh, knowledgeable and world experts in TB from all aspects, the scientific aspects, also on from the patient's perspective, the stigma-related uh, aspects, uh, looking at the new drug development, looking at the new diagnostics, the host genetics, all of those sort of scientific uh, uh, talks. But there are also then abstract sessions, room sessions, where um, people have submitted abstracts that have been selected, and this can cover any, any topic as long, you know, as long as it's related to TB. So this could be a scientific topic, topic, but it could also be a community and activist-linked topic, you know, where human rights are sort of addressed, where the healthcare worker rights are addressed, because very often we ignore that aspect, the infection control aspect. Um, and then we've also got, uh, obviously, some um, social programs as mm-hmm. well with the opening and we try to get uh, the, in fact, they have agreed already the Villiland uh, University Choir to, yes. to give some interesting uh, relief from all the academic work. All right. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And Dr. Margot the is there. I, yeah. I hope we see everybody there that can go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone that, uh, that is able to go will be there yeah. at the conference in Durban. That is Dr. Margot Ace, who is the chairperson of the 5th South African TB conference, uh, joining us there on the line. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective.
1738 Central African Time. Now, the Institute for Security Studies and the Water Research Commission launched the results of the only publicly available national water forecast for South Africa up to 2035 on how the Southern African nation can avoid a national water crisis. Zachary Donnefeld, senior researcher for the Institute for Security Studies and lead author of the new Institute for Security Studies report, says even if South Africa uses less water and applies all government's existing plans. The country will face a water crisis in the next 20 years. Our research focuses on the national level picture. So, you know, what's going on in Cape Town is obviously a, a, you know, specific, you know, particularly urgent uh, situation. The same could be said of Nelson Mandela Bay. But we really focus on is the national picture. And what our research finds is that South Africa as a country is withdrawing or consuming more water than it can reliably expect to yield in any given year. So how can South Africa avoid a national water crisis? Well, that's the good news. While the situation is certainly daunting and there are many challenges, there are also areas of South Africa's water sector that are operating pretty inefficiently and that are areas that can be targeted for improvements. What we've identified in our research is the particularly high level of non-revenue water, so that's water that's lost through physical infrastructure damage, mostly leaks in South Africa, the amount of treated wastewater, and water conservation and demand management. So those are kind of the big three interventions that we focus on in our paper. Does it mean that we don't have water or do we have enough water but the utilization thereof is not conducive to the situation as to where should it be used in specific purposes where it is supposed to be used? Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. it? The problem isn't that South Africa doesn't have enough water. It's that South Africa is using too much and that its infrastructure is in disrepair. So I'll give you, I think there are some concrete examples here. So in our forecast, we estimate that South Africa needs to find about 2.5 cubic kilometers or 2.5 billion cubic meters of additional water, either through demand reduction or supply enhancement measures. Now, that is a lot of water, and that's certainly a challenge for South Africa at the national planning level. But if you look at the numbers, you can be a little more optimistic about the problem. So the amount of non-revenue water in South Africa is about 40%. So that means about 40% of municipal water in South Africa is lost before it reaches the consumer. In Australia, which is also a water-scarce country, that number is about 10%. If South Africa were to get close to that 10% figure, and even 15 or 18%, would be a pretty substantial improvement south africa that would be you know almost half of that 2.5 cubic kilometers that south africa needs now if you look at treated wastewater south africa only treats about half of its wastewater a country like israel treats about 90 percent now israel is a small country and there are you know different considerations at play but if south africa could get to 75 or 80 percent of its treated wastewater That's another 30-40% of the way there. And then through additional conservation and demand management, you can easily get to a situation where South Africa has water security. So, you know, all of these conversations about desalination and all of this expensive technology, you know, all of that is well and good. But what South Africa really needs are, you know, available existing solutions like plumbers, and wastewater treatment facilities. You know, our research shows that these simple interventions over time will be enough to restore stability. The only question is, what has to happen between now and then? So, you know, how many people's lives will have to be affected until there's the, you know, political will and financial commitment to addressing this problem. Why is it that even if South Africa uses less water and applies all government's existing plans, the country will still face a water crisis in the next 20 years? 
So that is our kind of what we would call a, a base case forecast. So in our base case forecast, South Africa implements all of the reconciliation strategies that have been outlined by the Department of Water and Sanitation. So our base case uh, forecast assumes that every single one of those plans is completed on time into specification. The base case forecast also assumes a demand reduction of about a billion cubic meters. Now, even in this forecast where South Africa does everything it says it's going to do on time and reduces demand by a lot more than it plans to, the country still overexploits its renewable supply until about 2030. Now, this means that the country will be much more vulnerable to extreme weather events like the drought that happened in 2014-2015. So, it's in our current past forecast, South Africa is basically tiptoeing the line of overexploitation for the next 20 years. That was Zachary Donnefeld, who is Senior Researcher for the Institute of Security Studies. He was in conversation there with Wandile Kalipa. It is 17.45 Central African time. Your economics here is with Sani Matebula. Good afternoon. Thanks, as Pumelele. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has stepped up efforts to regularize the Zimbabwean economy after issuing a general amnesty ending in February this year for companies to declare what assets they had externalized. He issued a list of businesses involved in the illicit extraction of funds from Zimbabwe. The funds externalized come to a total of 1.46 million US dollars. The list includes 76 high-profile companies in manufacturing, mining, cross-border freight, and agriculture. Ntakwa Nengatane reports. Mnangagwa appears to be making good on his promise to the IMF and the World Economic Forum earlier this year to stabilize the economy and improve Zimbabwe's relationship with the international community and the global financial establishment. Zimbabwe fell out of favor after it became unable to honor its foreign debts The country has not been able to borrow from the international lenders since 1999. However, it cleared its 15-year arrears to the IMF in 2016. In a statement from Harare today, Nangagwa said companies on the list had either ignored or rejected the amnesty offer from the government by failing to account for the assets taken out of the country. Now it's up to them to clear their names from the list. Ntakwa Nangatani, SABC News, Johannesburg. And the European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barna, says he has reached a crucial step on a deal with British counterpart David Davis. Barnier said they had been able to agree on a large part of what would make an international agreement for Britain's orderly withdrawal. What we're presenting to, to you today here with David is a legal text, a joint legal text, which constitutes, in my mind, a decisive step, because we were able this morning to agree, and after all those days and nights of hard work, on a large part of what will make up an international agreement for the ordered withdrawal of the United Kingdom. The South African Cabin Crew Association is calling on the CEO of SAA to give a clarity on reports that there will be retrenchments at the state-owned airliner. Reports say SAA was restructuring and this would lead to massive job losses. The association has joined another union, SAFTU, in its call for new labor laws. SAFTU will embark on a protest march this week against the labor bill. The association's Zazi Sibanyani says those who looted money at the airliner should pay it back adding that workers should not be retrenched at their cost. We condemn such a move um, of, of retrenchment of any workers at SAA, including our members. We are aware that there's an element of a corrupt official within SAA trying to fight for survival. Uh, and we've called a long, long time ago for these people to be removed. It's taken too long, 
and this thing must be done very quickly because we believe that there's a move to discredit in order to privatize SAA. We call on the CEO actually to act on these corrupt officials and stop this move, consistent move to try push SAA to be privatized. Meanwhile, the Civil Aviation Authority of South Africa says it will act in accordance with the ruling of the South African High Court sitting in Johannesburg, which ordered that the Gupta family should hand over the Bombardier Global 6000 aircraft to the bank Export Development Canada. The court has also interdicted the family and its companies from using the aircraft, the bank, which operates as an export credit agency, and Stone River brought the application against the Guptas over a lease agreement relating to the plane, which is valued at 41 million US dollars. The Civil Aviation Authority of South Africa's director, Pupi Koza. Um, we have just, um, of course, this is breaking news. Uh, we've learned that the court um, has um, uh, um, made an order. So we shall be studying uh, the, the judgment. Um, or the order um, to see the implications in terms of um, whether what was requested is what, is what the court uh, has ordered. But as um, we've always uh, indicated, uh, in fact, um, is that we shall abide by, by the court order. So whatever the court order is, um, of course, after we've studied it, we shall then implement accordingly. Financial indicators now, the US dollar is at 11.94, South African rands at 9.44, Botswana Pula 9.55, Zambian Kwacha, also trading at 71 pence to the British pound and 81 cents against the euro. Commodities gold $1,312, platinum $942 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil has gone up to $65.85 per barrel. And that's how it's looking right now. Thank you very much, Usani. It is 17.50 Central African Time in Sports News. Now, here's Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. Musa Beliti is to step down as Liberia FA president after choosing not to run for a third term. Beliti, who took charge back in 2010, will be replaced in April's elections. Last year, Beliti played a leading role in helping Confederation of African Football President Ahmad Ahmad dethrone the long-standing Issa Hayetu, who has been in power for three decades. Now, the Liberian tried to run for the FIFA presidency itself back in 2016, but was barred from contesting after failing an eligibility test, a decision he then unsuccessfully challenged at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Now ranked 160th in the world by FIFA when Beliti took over back in 2010, Liberia broke into the top 100 three years later for the first time since George Weah, the legendary player who is now the country's president, retired in the early 90s. They have since dropped to their current ranking of 135th in the world. Back home, a communication breakdown between Bafana Bafana head coach Richard Baxter as well as Orlando Pirates has resulted in Pirates assistant coach Rulani Mukwena not being able to honor the national team call-up. Baxter had announced last week that Mukwena would be joining the team going to next week's uh, Four Nations tournament in Zambia. But last week, Pirates head coach Mulitin Stodojovic did indicate that this caught him off guard. Now, for a team like Pirates, that is a serious contender for the league title. This is a critical phase of the season and Baxter as well as Safa should have done better in consulting with Orlando Pirates. This tournament, this camp has been uh, really, really compromised in terms of time for preparation. The warning times for us to, to know that we were leaving and know that we were taking part was very, very short. And what that's done, it's made the lines of communication also a little bit short and and it's possible that protocol wasn't followed 100%. So at this moment in time, Rolani is not going to be taking part in our camp. Uh, we understand the situation of pirates and uh, we just want to let everybody know that the intention was to bring a young up-and-coming coach and onto the camp and give him that experience. And uh, and that was a positive, a positive gesture. And 
I think all parties will look to try to readdress that in the future. But at the moment, Rolani will be uh, will, will not be joining us. Well, Bafana Bafana play Angola on Thursday in the first game in Indola at five at rather three p.m. Central African time. And should they win, they will play the winner of the Zambia Zimbabwe game on Sunday, also at three p.m. Central African time at the Levi Mwanawasa Stadium. They depart for Indola on Tuesday, and Baxter says only Bid Vets Vets Busim Kwanazi is carrying a knock from the weekend's matches. Uh, with regards to the players, the players have already have already reported. We've got, uh, I think Butler's got a slight hamstring uh, that will be monitored this uh, this afternoon before we go to training and then we'll make a decision if he should take part in the training or not. Apart from that, I think everybody's just about, I haven't spoken to the doctor this morning because I've been at a meeting at Safa House, but uh, last night's investigations didn't show anything uh, major. And finally, in tennis news, South African tennis star Kevin Anderson has moved to number eight on the official ATP rankings. This follows his run at the quarter, rather to the quarterfinals of last week's Indian Wales Masters. The Anderson lost to Croatia's Borna Koric to miss out on an opportunity of reaching his first Masters 1000 semi-final. Meanwhile, U.S. Open champion, former champion rather Juan Martin Del Potro, climbed two places to sixth after defeating Roger Federer in the Indian Wales final. The 29-year-old handed Federer his first defeat of 2018 with a 6-4, 6-7, 7-6 victory, extending his winning streak to 11 matches, including a title run earlier this year. Now, Federer himself reclaimed top position just over a month ago and remains marginally ahead of his eternal Spanish rival, Rafael Nadal, who missed the American tournament due to a leg injury. Well, the Zaya Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. South Sudan angered by the renewal of the mandate for UN peacekeeping forces in the country. South Africa's port city of Durban to host the 5th National South African TB Conference in June. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumalele Zondi, producer Luanda Mohamed, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us your WhatsApp messages, plus 2776-300-3327, plus 2776-300-3327. You can also tweet us on channel Africa One. We leave you with Ndimbonile by Sands and Lohiso.
La 